Yeah, that, that was fun, actually. We, Fuss and I went up to Waitrose, had a nice chat with the manager who was very, uh, very up and, and uh, supportive of what we were doing. And, and I was really touched just how, um, how readily the people were willing to buy an extra item for the, the, the food bank, our feed food bank. And uh, uh, it, it, was, it was great. Some, many of them said, oh, yeah, we did this last year. And so there's a real sense in which, uh, you know, people know who we are now and we're not trying to explain what it is we're doing. They get it. And, and it was just, it was good fun, wasn't it, darling? We, we, we used to live up near Waitrose when we first started the church and we, we bumped into some old neighbors as well, which was quite surprising, wasn't it? That was kind of great fun too. So, yeah, a Christmas giveaway, as Rich rightly said, you know, um, we are manning our posts in the various uh, supermarkets throughout this month. And, uh, and also we are collecting, we're making an offering, an appeal, because we want to finish the orphanage in India. About 6,000 pounds worth of work still to do. And we also want to give every kid there the Christmas, a Christmas to remember by buying them a whole new set of clothes. That's an Indian tradition and a little gift. So, you know, it's all in there, that little Christmas giveaway thing. And please help us. And if you haven't already done so, please, uh, please get behind that. And let's, uh, let, let's make some orphans very happy this Christmas. Let me just pray now, and I'm going to get straight into God's word. Father, I want to say thank you to you for your presence. We want to say thank you, Lord God, that, that you have revealed yourself. And that, Lord God, we pray that, as it were, um, as it says in the Bible, the, the scales fell off Paul's eyes. Let the scales fall off our eyes. Let us see Jesus all the more truly, all the more really as he is. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm kind of uh, into a, li a little series on the TV at the moment. I don't know if we, you, you've seen it. It's called Liberty. It's about the, li the, the Liberty store in London. Anybody been watching that? Hands up. One or two of you, yeah. It's um, full of very interesting people uh, on the staff. But... Um, but it is a fascinating place, Liberty's department store, and it's it's it, you know it's on Regent Street. If you've ever, if you've ever been there, or uh, you know you'll know what I mean. But if you haven't, go go there. It's an extraordinary building. It was built out of two old um, 18th century warships, 19th century warships, and all wood and timber and oak. It's it's an incredibly atmospheric place. But they 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 are real high end, and they do a lot of great design stuff. So walking around there is quite a treat. And then if you go up onto the top floor, the fourth floor, there's the carpet department. Fliss and I have been there. And there's a character there, a guy called Bruce, who runs that department. He's an absolutely got an encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of rugs. And uh, he features quite a lot on this program. And Fliss and I have visited and he's chatted with him. And so it's kind of fun to see him. He's quite anarchic. You know, he, wants, he doesn't want progress. He, he wants it to stay as it was. And so there's a bit of friction in the TV program. But enjoy that. But this last episode, the reason I mention it is this, is that they, they were planning for Christmas. And they have what they call the big reveal. And I think this is a term that's used in all sorts of uh, retail situations. The big reveal. And that's basically, you know, you want to you start your Christmas season with the biggest splash, the biggest bang possible. And so they've got a whole team working throughout the year to sort of design uh, something spectacular for uh, liberties. And then they have a special day and they try and uh, close off the street and get the assistance of the... Of, of the police and what have you, and then they, they cover the whole they cover the whole of the front of the of the ground floor of the place with this great big long kind of curtain thing, 
hiding the Christmas displays which were all behind and there was all sorts of drama and last minute hitches and stuff like that but of course the great moment arrives you know countdown five four three two one and the curtain goes down and there it is and you go oh yeah you know that's nice and and I as as the team and I were talking about this Christmas and the preaching series I have to say that it's a real challenge to make the greatest story ever told or the greatest love story, as Nick sort of shared in that prophetic word, um, come, uh, come alive again, particularly if, if, like me, you've been a Christian for a few years. I, I know it, I embrace it, I love every jot and tittle of it, but the fact of the matter is it's familiar, and some would say overly familiar. Even people who aren't Christians fancy that they know what it's about. And so. Our prayer every year, not just this year, is that somehow or other the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to see something more of Jesus. Our prayer is that we won't go, oh, yeah, Christmas, yeah, yeah, another Christmas message, that somehow something, somewhere in this will captivate us, will cause us to go, wow. Oh my Lord, what an extraordinary thing you've done for us. So I'm gonna close my eyes and simply say amen to that, what I've just said, and then we'll get into the teach. Amen. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. Amen. In the beginning, the beginning this Christmas series is called, I get the privilege of kicking it off today, and some of you will not be surprised to see that we begin in John's Gospel. So if you've got a smart device or a Bible, it'll come up on the screen too. Just turn with me then, please, to to, uh, John chapter one, and we'll read these famous verses, so often read in churches and cathedrals and chapels at Christmas time. It just simply begins with the greatest beginning of all. all. It just says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning, when John, the the, the writer, the author of this, composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this passage, that was an absolutely deliberate reference in the beginning. A reference to what? It was a reference to the first three words in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where it says, in the beginning. In the beginning. And actually what John is doing here, he, he's, it's, it's absolutely masterful, and I'm hoping that you'll catch a little glimpse of my excitement and, and, and what it is I'm trying to communicate this morning. But, but what John is trying to do, he's trying to deal with some, some, some unfortunate little heresies that are beginning to creep into the church. John's gospel, it was is believed, was, was written much later. The earliest gospel, of course, is, is Mark's gospel, believed to have been um, you know, uh, written by Peter through Mark, his assistant, possibly as early as 42 uh, AD. 
Anno Domini. But John's gospel is much later, and it's, it's much more refined in that sense. There's, there's quite complex theological themes beginning to emerge. But also, in this embryonic thing we call the Christian church, there's also been one or two kind of rabbit trails, one or two lines of thought that began to develop and then, then sort of fizzled out because they were, they were not sort of... Uh, they did not have God's breath upon them. And John is actually trying to deal in the first instance with some of these things. And, and, and there's, some, there's a bit of a, a groundswell of opinion that actually Jesus, who is loved and adored, was actually a, a supernaturally imbued angel. He was a, a, a created being, he, he, but he was spiritual. And actually, as he walked through life doing his miracles, what people were observing was not actually flesh and blood, but actually an angel. And there was this quite a movement that, oh yeah, an angel came among us and his name is Jesus. And that was beginning to gain some, some quarter in some, uh, in some parts of the, the Christian church. The other thing which was very pop popular was the idea that, that, that Jesus was a supernaturally endowed man, not an angel. So he was flesh and blood, he ate and he wept and he cried and all those kind of things and he definitely did die, but he was a man. And so he, he was just an ordinary man or a woman like you and I uh, and, and was somehow, you know, imparted, got a thunderbolt from heaven and suddenly he was able to do all these things. So there's these various ideas going around. And John is at pains to try and sort of gather this all up. And he's going to knock this one up on the head at the moment. But before we get to that, let's just have a little bit more of a look at this, this passage. And I'll unpack it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now there's a hint of where John is going to take this. But this word in the Greek is logos, as, as many of you will know, some will not know, but it's, it's a particular word with, with, with particular connotations. I'll say more of that in a moment. Let's just stay with the text for a moment. Verse three, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And when it says in him was life, we're not just talking about he's alive. Like, you know, Frankenstein, when they get the electricity going and they go, he's alive, you know. It wasn't that he just lived. There was a quality of life there. In the Greek, in the writing, there is a quality of life. And in fact, Jesus refers to this in John 10, 10. Some of you will know this. Jesus said of himself, he says, I have come that you may have life. No, I have come that you might have life. No, I have come that you might have life in all its abundance. So he's not just alive, you know, like, you know, when you're commuting into London and there's all those commuters around you on the sort of 620 up to town and there's, there's a rumor that there's life there, but in fact, as you look around your fellow commuters, you're not all that sure. In fact, you could swear that that bloke was <laughs> sat in the same chair yesterday, he may well be dead. You know, it's not that, it's not just breath. Jesus Christ, John is at pains to say, he says, he, he is life. He is the source of life. And then he tries to unpack it a little bit more by saying, and this life was the light of men. It was the best of man. It's the best of all he is. 
It's the abundance. It's the, the creative spark. It's us at our best and the full potential. That is who, who Christ is, and that who is who the Word is. And then this little passage finishes, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Everything before was darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just like one candle. I've often used this illustration, and many of you will be familiar with it, but I used to, in my early 20s, I was in a caving club in the North Yorkshire Dales, and we used to go into these extraordinary caverns underground, pitch black, black like you've never seen. I mean, there's that, the only place where you can see black that thick, where it's like a soup, is in a cave deep under the ground. But you just light one little candle. We did it for fun. We just turn all our lights off and then try and scare one another, you know. But, but then you would just light a little candle, and it can be a birthday candle. It can be, you know, it can be a great big church candle or whatever. But one little candle causes the darkness to flee. And suddenly you look around and you're in something almost the size of a cathedral. In some cases, it is the size of a cathedral. And very few people have seen that. And it's extraordinary because the darkness flees. The darkness does not overcome it. Now, when John wrote this passage, he had two two uh, groups in mind, because there were more or less two groups. I mean, we look at our multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural society, and it's complex, and it's diverse, and it's, it's, it's exciting, and it's challenging all at the same time. But there were really only two major groups in, in the, uh, that, that one took uh, any notice of, and there were the Greeks. And for them, the logos was a particularly important word. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, a philosopher, had gained a lot of traction. And uh, in that day, he was a very popular thinker. And his, his thought was that the Logos was the creator, that there was this thing he called the Logos. But actually, could you pin him down? No, you couldn't. In fact, in, in, in Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, there are 700 references to the Logos. They kind of like this idea. It's a philosophical thought. But the moment you think you've got it, it changes, because every single reference is different. He was into allegory, so nothing was what it seemed to be. Everything meant something else. So it was kind of like you know, an intellectual's playground. They could sort of you know, play in the ballpark and play on the swings, and it was wonderful. But actually, could you pin anything down? But it, then, it, sort of a bit, it was kind of like New Age. It kind of felt spiritual and felt good. For Logos was very important, was a creative force, but quite what it was or who it was, who knew. The Jews embraced this because they had deified, that's the right word, they had deified the law. They believed the word, the word that was given by God, the law, was holy. They, they even be personified. Uh, I, think I'm, I think I asked to have this on the screen. doesn't matter if I didn't, but I'll just read this to you. This is out of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27. And I'll read it if, you, if it's not there. It's fine. It doesn't matter. And uh, this is out of Proverbs. This, is, this gives you a sense of the Jews' high regard of the law to the point where they've made it, as it were, a God and a, a creator God. And he, this, is, this is about wisdom. And, and, and verse 27 says this, I was there when he set the heavens in place. 
when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. And this is the Jewish author talking about the law. And see how it's, as I said, it's been deified and personified. Of course, the Christians, we've, we've taken that on board as a prophetic reference to Christ. So you've got, you've got the, the Greeks whose favorite kind of topic of conversation, the way, they, the way they're viewing the world is through the logos, this kind of new agey, spiritual, spiritist kind of thing that is, that is involved in creation. You've got the Jews who love the logos, the word of God that is this gift that Moses brought to them and, and is so important to them. So immediately in this opening passage, John has captured the attention of his hearers captured the attention and then and then there's the big reveal so everybody's looking everybody's gathered everybody is saying what's he going to come up with next this sounds good and the big reveal is in verse 14 let's throw that up on the screen thank you verse 14 the word the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now that's, I humbly suggest, a reveal. That made the Gentiles, the Greek speakers, the Greek thinkers, the philosophers go, what? You mean it's not ethereal? You mean it's not sort of ambiguous? You mean it's not allegorical? You mean he became, do do you mean that he became flesh? Yes, and dwelt among us. And for the Jews who, who hold up the law and hedge it about with the Torah, the Torah was not the Ten Commandments, it was so much more than that. They said, let's build, we must build a, a, a hedge. They talked about building a hedge around the law. And that was the Torah, and the Torah was, was, was what you lived your life by, and it was prescriptive of just about every element of your life, from brushing your teeth to taking a donkey out to the field. And so the Jews go, what? You mean flesh? Yeah, I mean, you can't mean flesh, surely. But this is the big reveal, that the Logos, the Word of God, has become flesh and dwells among us. And it goes on to say that it brings glory to God, this Logos, that is no longer a it, it's a he. And do you remember some of you a few weeks ago, I was teaching out, I think, John 15, when we looked at the prayer of Jesus, and Jesus prayed on the night Before he was crucified, he says to the Father in his personal, intimate prayer, before he begins to pray for us, he says, Father, Father, give me back the glory that was mine before I came to be with you. You know, there's something so plaintive about that. I have an image which may not work for you, but I can remember teaching my kids to swim. And my second daughter, Jessie, had a particular hard time of it. 
It may have been the fact that I thought it was a good idea to throw her in the pool one day without, and, and then I thought, well, she'll either sink or swim, but Fliss still hasn't quite forgiven me for that. And I'm not sure Jesse has. But you know the kids, when they're all cold and they've got these armbands and they're splashing around and, and, and they want to play, they're okay with playing, but, but you're really needing them to learn how to swim and you're trying to teach them, trying to coach them. And there comes that point where they say, Papa, can I come out now? Now, that image may not work for you, but that kind of works for me because there's a real sense of vulnerability in, in, in the Lord Jesus at that moment. Can I come home now? I want to be with you, Father. And, I was, and, and I've done everything you asked me to do. Just like you guys are going to be in the pool tonight. <laughs> Can we come out? No, no, stay in there. Let's get another photograph. No, stay in there. I'm sorry, I don't want to trivialize it, but I think pictorially, I, I've been trained to think rationally, but I've always thought pictorially, and there's this picture of the, the Lord Jesus saying, Father, I can't think of anything bar the one thing that is left to do. Can I come home now? Father, please restore to me that which is mine and by right, and for I've been with you since before time began. And I have limited myself, the kenosis, Philippians. I have poured myself out in order to become less than I was in order to die for these. But now, Lord, glorify your son with the glory he had before, the glory he had with you. The big reveal. So this is an extraordinary thing. You can imagine as the, this was, was handed around and read, it, be, it, it caused so much debate in the debating halls. It caused so much arguments in the synagogue. You can imagine them looking at this and flipping through the scriptures and trying to get their head around it. And if that wasn't enough, then John uses their own scripture the Jewish scriptures, which was held in high regard, make no bones about it, by whether you were Jews or not. He uses the scripture itself to say how this happened. Not just that it did happen, but he uses the Jewish scripture in Isaiah chapter seven, and next week my dear colleague Dennis is gonna take the story on and spend some time in Isaiah with us, for us, but but in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says here, this is the how the creator God becomes flesh. And it has as many problems as it has solutions, but it says this, in their own book, their own beloved Torah, their, their, their sacred writings, it says this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Excuse me, what did you say then? The virgin will conceive. I'm not sure I might have a problem with that. It's in the book. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Wow! Now they're talking. Now their ears are, are itching. <coughs> Excuse me. Now there's some discussion. Thank you. 
And all of this is to deal with a problem, a problem in paradise, actually. Something that began way back when. And dear Lucas Targos, who spoke to us three weeks ago, made reference to this. Dear Rick Williams made reference to this two weeks ago. Dear Mark Helvagin made reference to this last week. A problem in paradise. And it's actually hinted at in the opening verses of this passage that we began with. It says this. It says here in verse 3, and I won't expect that to go on the screen, but chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verse 3, it says, Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been seen. In him, verse 4, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now that's interesting. I don't want to get too pedantic there, but the was there is the imperfect. It's the past tense. It means that the life was the light of all mankind, but that is not the case now. There is darkness now. And that is a little hint at that there had been a problem in paradise, a, a problem that many of us know about, a problem whereby Eve disobeyed God, was tempted and fell to temptation and, and ate that which should not have been eaten and let loose that which should never have been let loose. And as a result of that, we experienced what we call the fall, alienation from God. And sin runs rife and riot in the world even today. And so Jesus, the Son of God, who was in glory, who is the Word, who is the Creator, who became flesh for us, who was born of a Virgin Mary, came. Why? Because no supernaturally infused angel could do it. No supernaturally anointed man could do it. Do what? And the what was this, to die for your sin and mine. You see, if I have unfortunately fallen into a rapid river on holiday, and I'm being swept downstream, and then, God forbid, one of my children falls in, has been dragged in with me. It's no good me saying to my, while I'm drowning, saying to my drowning child, come to daddy, hold on to me. Why? Because I'm drowning too. I'm not on the land. I'm drowning. I'm in the river. I'm in the rapids. I cannot save them as much as I may want to, as much as I may ache to. I cannot save them. And you and I cannot save each other from our sin. Yes, we can help disciple. Yes, we can be counsel. How do we can do all these things? But we cannot ultimately pay the price for your sin. Only the perfect being, God himself. And that's what happened at the cross. That's what these folk tonight will be celebrating. The old man is gone. They're dead to sin. Why? Because the new man has, has given them life and has raised them up. Jesus, the perfect one, he was the one who had his feet on solid ground, who is solid ground. It was Jesus and is Jesus who can rescue because he is in a position to rescue. He's not being swept away like the rest of us. Jesus, whose perfect heart can soak up my depravity, your depravity, the sins of the world, that's why Christians get excited about this gospel. It is he, he is the only one, not an angel, not a man, no matter how worthy and extraordinary he might be. 
And the problem here is not just alluded to, it actually, actually is unpacked in 10, verses 10 and 12. What it says here was, was that Jesus was in the world, so he's been born now, and, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not re- recognize him. There was no big reveal for them. <coughs> Excuse me. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. They did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't it funny when you think you know someone and then you find out something and it changes for better or ill, when you, when you f- suddenly dis- you know, discover some great new truth about them. A, a silly little everyday example which may or may not re- relate to you. When I was at school, I went to a small but rather good prep school, private school. We all had to wear rather ridiculous um, uniforms. In those days, small private schools like to put you in tangerine-colored blazers and stuff like that, which really marked you out on the platform uh, before all the sort of local uh, hoodlums and they, so you, it was always a bit of a struggle to get home in one piece, you know. We all wore uniforms. But during the holidays, which were very long, you know, you had a few special friends and you'd keep in touch with them and maybe you'd go, you know, you'd get an invita- invitation to go to their house. And when you went to their house, you saw them out of uniform. You, you knew what Stefferson Minor was like at school. But when you went to their house, then you found out something else. And sometimes it was a very humble house. Parents were making huge sacrifices to put their children, their sons, through this, this education. Others were just like my parents, living in a you know, three-bedroom 1930s semi. You know, and they were just sort of like us. But every now and then, you'd get invited to somebody's home, and you'd turn up, and you'd, walk, you know, you'd have some instructions. In those days, you know, we'd either cycle or we'd go on the train, no, no sort of chaperoning. And I can remember turning up at this one bloke's house. He lived in Sunningdale. And I, I, I didn't cycle. I went on the train. I walked down. I, I, I asked somebody at the station, where is such and such a road? And the bloke said, oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that's straight down there, about 150 yards, turn on left. So I went down there, turned into the street, and it was full of mansions, you know, Mansions. They, they were pretty close together, so they were kind of like cheap mansions. <laughs> you know the kind I mean, you know. Like, uh, they're huge, great houses, and there's just about enough room to put the bins outside, you know. But I walked down, and I, rem- I remember standing outside, look at this kind of thing. I thought, Boy, that l- looks pretty. Have I got the right address? And then suddenly the door flies open. My friend says, Lane, hey, come on in. Come on, we've got some great things to do. And suddenly, I'm seeing Stephenson Minor again. The schoolboy I know. But there was a reveal there. There was a sense that I suddenly saw him for what he was, which was more than just a snotty schoolboy who was kept nicking my packed lunch. There was more to him than that. The people of God, the Jewish people, did not recognize Jesus. And so what are we to do as we try and get into God's word and try and read more and try and read past and the mince pies and the Chris Dingles and the carols as we try and say, oh God, I, I want to see more of Jesus. As we study God's word, as we try and dig into God's word, as we try and understand the nuances that are there to be found if you seek them out. What are we to do? Or rather like that prophetic word we had, we need to humble ourselves and become 
seekers again. Seekers. That's what we'll do over these next two or three weeks. We'll come together and we'll seek. And as the band comes up, I'm reminded of Jesus' invitation in Matthew's gospel, right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Ask and it will be given to you. Now there's an invitation if ever there was one. Let's all stand and pray. Father God, I want to say thank you to you for the inherent invitation in this season to seek you, just as the shepherds sought you, just as Herod sought you, just as the wise men, the magi, sought you. Lord, we come as seekers this, in this season, not just those who celebrate, but those who come to seek the real Jesus, the living God, the Word made flesh. And everyone said, Amen, Amen.